Today I'm going to chat with Irish professional cyclist Con McDonfey. Let's cue that intro! The big question is this, how do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness and our longevity? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. It's another week. Going to kick off this week slightly unorthodox. I know we normally do interviews on a Wednesday, but we mixed it up with the Sam Hills with Academy interview last Friday. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to keep in the interview tradition of a few really cool guests lined up over the next month. And I'm going to do slightly more interviews than normal over the next month. I'm just playing around with format. I still love the Roadman Bites short form ones, but I do like digging into it a little bit more in the guest interview so really the format's going to be whatever way my mood sways if you have any opinion on it hit me at dm over on instagram it's just roadman.cycling over there today i'm going to chat with former irish elite national time trial champion con mcdonfey who's currently riding for evo pro cycling we're going to talk all things cycling but specifically i wanted to focus on the grind what it takes to make it as a pro cyclist the obstacles the crashes the financial hardships and the difficulty because often we see the iceberg we see the tip of the iceberg only we see the success stories the other success stories of sam bennett nicholas roach ryan mullen but we don't see under the water we don't see that body of hard work and sacrifice that goes into getting to that end point con is still on that journey of sacrifice and that's what I want to talk to him about today before i dive into that let me just remind you about patreon patreon is how we fund the podcast podcast is entirely funded off that at the moment but i also like to call it my beer fund so it's all we ask is the price of a pint of beer once a month so if you'd see me out and about if you see me in a coffee shop if you see me in a pub and you'd be willing to buy me a beer to thank me for the work on the roadman podcast for facilitating these interviews you can virtually do the same here the link is in the bio but it's www.patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore walsh five or a month's not gonna break you Without further ado, let's jump in and chat with Mr. Con McDonfey. Thanks, thanks for having me, Anto. Uh, okay. What's the crack? Yeah, no, it's all good. Sat here in uh, in Girona, um, trying, been training away on a nice rest day, recovery week this week, and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting cracking on with the podcast. Yeah, I'm very jealous. I had a short commute, about five minutes, to come around to record the podcast, and it, I was on a Brompton coming around and I was literally watching out for icy patches on my five minute commute. Well, if it helps at all, uh, it's icy here as well. It's cold, it's sunny, as Jorana always, well, tends to be always sunny. But um, I know people who fell off on the ice yesterday in Jorana, so uh, it's, it's not warm. Good enough for them. I kind of bring a bit of smile to my face. <laughs> yeah. You would have got some crack out of it if I had a stack that coming around on the Brompton carrying me laptop <laughs> to record the podcast. Oh, no, you're lucky. You'll probably break the laptop on the way. <laughs> uh, how long have you been out in Toronto for and how's training gone? Um, yeah, so I've been out. So obviously, we, we caught up in December. I've been out since the 1st of December. Um, I went home for Christmas and then I came back out again on the 1st of January. Um, training's been going good so basically I've started with a new coach started with him in November um, and I've basically just done two big training blocks so 
one pre-Christmas where we did like two 30-hour weeks that they like um then chill over Christmas and then I've, I'm at the end of a block now so I've done 60 hours and almost 60 hours in January so it's kind of I was been a bit in a bit of a bag yesterday, and um, so I'm we're happy for a few, few days. In a very different place since we rode. So that day I <laughs> rode with you. I, we'd gone out. You actually didn't come out, but your housemate rides for hey, is it Hagen Axon Spermans? I always fuck that name up. I just call him Axion, but yeah, I'm Axion. Yeah. yeah. So your his con's housemate is Joe Laverick, and it was Joe's birthday. Um, we all went out to the nightclub, but excluding <laughs> Con, and I, I managed to catch COVID in the nightclub. And so that six hour ride we done, I actually had COVID for that, but it was like, <laughs> it, it, like it, it hadn't kicked in or whatever. So, yeah, yeah but it was in the system because two days after that, like I was, I rode with uh, another lad has been on the podcast, uh, Jack Ultra Cyclist. I rode with him the day after I rode with you and it was like mm. a four hour cruisy enough ride. And I was like, I am coming apart bad here. Like what the fuck is I going just, on? I just put you in a box and that's all. That's what I was thinking. I was like, fuck me, Con can't be going that well. Like, I am in a bad way here. And then the next morning I woke up and I was like, you know what, I've got, you know, the locals call it Geronaitis, you know, when you just ride for too long and you're just too fucked. Yeah. So I was like, I've got a case of Geronaitis here, so I'm just going to book a flight home because I'd been for, I'd been there for about four weeks. Booked the flight home, went to get my PCR test and it was positive. And I was like, for fuck's sake. So did you have to, you do quarantine here then? At the quarantine there, yeah. So I only got home on Christmas Eve. <laughs> You're lucky to get home for Christmas and also. Yeah, and I had to live off a good man. Undoubtedly, uh, very doubtful this man listens to the podcast. It's a good man working for uh, Glovo, the equivalent of Uber Eats and Girona Ricardo. He was yeah, hooking me, me up. Me, me and Joe were only talking about Glovo. We were walking, we went out for a walk after dinner last night and uh, we were walking. We were giving out that, I don't know, do you know the street off where the stone bridge is I think it's called Santa Clara or something basically yeah, it's a road and everyone walks on the road and when we're coming back from a training ride we ride on on the road obviously and there's always people walking in the street and we're always giving out the people in the street and uh, we were those people on the walk last night and we nearly killed a poor Glovo man um, who was who was riding delivering what is delivering food I suppose and um, then we got into the conversation it's like Glovo isn't even like Deliveroo or anything. It's just like, it's just kind of that shitty, almost trying to be Deliveroo, but it's not quite. So it's like, <laughs> Look, I'm not going to abuse it too much. You kept me alive during my isolation. Because <laughs> no uh, there was no one around. Like, obviously, I could have reached out to, you know, there's a few Irish people in town and stuff. But it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to be making my problem their problem, getting to drop me off groceries and stuff. So yeah. I was like, oh, fuck it, I'm going to live off Glovo, but. He's a good man. But I feel like the Glovo lads are kind of like category four riders that just start in Ireland. They're because yeah, they're on yeah. these electric bikes. So they've got a lot of speed, but not a lot of bike handling going on. So it's kind of a recipe for disaster. It's kind of the opposite of the rest of the people you see rocking around Girona. Have you ever seen the guy in Girona who rides around with no wheel on the front? He just wheelies around the place. I've just assumed he had stolen that bike and the wheel was oh, locked to a lamppost. I actually found out the other day he's a stunt actor, so he's he just rides around looking for I don't know what he does be doing like, but he's he's he get, takes part in movies and stuff and uh, so yeah he's he's not he's not he's not an actor like <laughs> I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of work for a lad who just wheelies as an actor. 
<laughs> if there yeah, was, I could get into that myself. <laughs> seemingly, there's like two hours a day just riding around Girona, no front wheel. Like big training plan, big training plan. Tell them if you need to coach to hit us up. <laughs> uh, you came through. You're with Evo Pro Cycling now, but you came through the French system. Uh, obviously, yeah. I spent a year out there as well, uh, so I kind of know what it's like. But I suppose for anyone listening to the podcast who's on the way up and they're contemplating, you know, they have that dream of getting to the world tour and there's a couple of different ways to get there. You know, I had uh, Sam Hill on the podcast there on Friday and Sam Hill was one of the lads who entered Zwift Academy. Then he went to the Zwift finals out in Mallorca. Ultimately he didn't get the contract. It was Alex Bogdag, I think got the contract. Uh, But Sam Hill chose to go that route to try and get a contract, obviously worked for Jay Voyan, but you've chosen to go, the more traditional route, uh, I suppose. The more you know, a proud enough path trodden in Ireland from, you know, I think you know Shay Elliott was probably one of the first to go over to Stephen Roach to Aidan Duff. You know, we put a lot of good riders through that path, and you went that way. Did did you give much thought to go on that path, or was it just something you kind of fell into? Um. Well, yeah. So basically. When I started, so I started in a small cycling club in Bumboyne through, uh, you probably do know, Tosh Lavery. So yeah. my, fa- my father cycled a bit. My grandfather cycled in the 40s. Um, and basically, my father met Tosh Lavery on the road and he's like, should bring Con down to the club because I'd been kind of, my father had been discouraged from riding by my grandfather. And so he took up cycling when he was like 40. And, and then I wasn't allowed to start cycling. I was always, always a big cycling fan, started cycling when I was 15 or 16. Um, and then kind of outgrew Inspiration Cycling Club in Dunboyne because they weren't really a racing club, joined Luke and, and that's where we kind of started training properly. Um, and then my first year at under 23, I started training properly. I was coached by a guy called Nico Angelicas. You probably know about Nico. Um, and he kind of put no illusions in our head as to how hard it is, like, like because that that ultimately, like, I reckon it's probably the hardest sport you can do, <laughs> um, give or take. But so yeah, like, I was told that unless you can win in Ireland, you can't go anywhere. So I I was lucky enough, or trained hard enough, or whatever way you want to look at it. So like in. My second year, U23, I won a fair few races in Ireland, won a stage of Ulster, had the jersey and stuff like that. I think it's good advice, though, because if you're not winning in Ireland or, you know, if you're listening to the podcast in the UK, if you're not winning in the UK, when you move to France, the racing's that much harder. I remember coming home from France to do the Ross, and it's like the eight easiest days of the entire season, even though it's a 2.2. The racing in France is just, it's up a level, and it's completely delusional to think you can step there unless you're winning in Ireland already. For sure. It's, it's also so different because in Ireland, it's, you have to ride hard all the time and then you can be able to sprint at the end. And that's there are people who win unless you can ride away on your own. In France, like obviously there's this mantra of them being so skinny and not eating and doping and all this. But like ultimately, they are really skinny. So the minute they put pe- pressure on the pedals, they go fast up a hill. And it's so punchy. And that took really takes from getting used to, you know. Um, so, like, for an Irish rider who, like me personally, I'm not a punchy rider at all. Like, I'd be more of a time trialist kind of, that kind of, I suppose a diesel if you want to put it, but I don't really like that term because it's kind of a, 
<laughs> not, not nice to uh, accept but um <laughs> yeah it's like it the, the, the actually the, the nature of french racing doesn't necessarily suit me but it is just it's just so much harder like I, I for example this year when i changed over or last year sorry when i changed back over to continental level with evo pro i didn't notice a change in level from a french coupe de france dn1 to uh 1.1 i thought it was the 1.1 were almost easier well i had the exact same experience when i went from france to the us i actually felt it was probably marginally a step down than the french level and you're racing that level in france sometimes four times a week that's the thing it's completely different racing my first year in nojant and um, like nojant there was would be one of the most highly renowned dn1 teams in france for many years like and like it's a good team and we were just racing i barely had to train it was great but like my first year in Nochant, i had 74 race days which is insane you know like yeah. it was just broken after so but it's yeah, no. you know there's a french term i'm not sure familiar with uh le metier and it's kind of like the hard work or the apprenticeship or the craft is the english translation to it and mm-hmm. that's what it is it's they literally you you throw lads into this environment and you see who can survive some can, some can. Like, life's not glamorous out there. No, not at all. Like, for example, my first year in Nogent, um, and part of my second year, but obviously my second year in Nogent was the COVID year, so it kind of got halted. Like, our team house, if you want to call it, that was a prefab that, you know, you go to school in, and, um, like, it was just grim. Like, I was sharing, my first year I was sharing with Dara Mahoney, and we were... So our, we were cooking on a hot plate that was beside a microwave and we were using a, a bathroom sink to do our washing up in. It was just, it was gross like, but. I remember this, uh, actually just, just started talking, I remember it. We used to have to go to races where we were staying overnight and you'd have to bring your sleeping bag because there'd be, oh, no, that, that, that's, there'd be that's, no linen on the beds. Well, that's well in existence as you stay in a, what do they call them? Um, uh, a jeet. Stay in a jeet, <laughs> and uh, you gotta bring your uh, your your pillow, your sleeping bag, or your uh, your bed linen. And uh, yeah, if you don't, if you forget it, you're going cold. Like <laughs> it's absolutely bizarre. But yeah. so, uh, did you get paid when you were out in France? Yeah, I was lucky in that. Um, yeah, I got paid. So the first year, they have this thing in in France called the service de week. So that was six hundred euro a month, and that was my first my first year. And then obviously after. I didn't have a bad year. I didn't have a good year, but I finished the, my first year in Ajant with a few top fives. So the team was like, okay, we'll pay you a bit more. And then 2021, I was, I was comfortable, you know, it's like but, I wasn't. But that is, that's a government almost social welfare type subsidy, isn't it? Rather than from the team. Uh, in 20, sorry, in my first year in Ajant, yeah, that's like, it's a, a service to be, it's like a, a volunteers thing. So they, I think, I'm not sure whether they're actually supposed to be giving it to bike riders, but like, like they are. But yeah. because I, I didn't get it when I was there, uh, I'm not sure it was. I think it was an age thing because I wasn't U23, so okay. I didn't qualify for it when I went there. Yeah. But I was teammates with Aaron Bogle, who was U23, and he did qualify for it. So okay. we had a massive different. We lived together, and we had very different spending power because I was only getting fifty euro a week, but he was getting fifty euro a week plus the welfare. So mm-hmm. he was balling outrageous, like Jay Z around town buying <laughs> coffees and luxuries like that. Yeah, because like we were talking, me and Dara were in 
basically where Lausanne is, it's quite near, uh, the nearest nice town would be Chantilly. And um, it's basically where the king of France, or do they still have a king? But when they did have a king, he'd get like, have his married, get married and stuff. And um, proper nice town, fancy town, like and in the north of Paris, that kind of region, there isn't that many nice towns. Um, so that, that's the only town that has a decent cafe. So we spend a fair amount of time in the cafe. And one day in the cafe, we met these American girls. And basically, they were saying that they were on the service to vegan. They were like, what? How is that possible? Like, So like, they're, or were they American or English or somewhere? Anyway, and um, we didn't quite understand how they were on it. And basically, it, that's what it's designed for. It's designed for people who, they were teachers. And it's designed for people who come over and help or volunteer as like an actual normal human job rather than a cyclist. But uh, yeah. And how much do Cycling Ireland help you out in your sort of, you know, journey from domestic rider trying to make it as a world tour rider? Well, yeah, well, ultimately, cycling, it's not Cycling Ireland's job to help riders because that would be seen as favoritism, like, um, I was I have been quite fortunate in that like I have received opportunities, I suppose. Um and, but on the other hand, I've also felt like I've been flicked a few times. But regardless of them helping, like for example, I was coached uh for the past two years by Tommy Evans. I'm sure you know Tommy like um who's one of the best Irish writers probably ever. Um and like that was completely like on cycling Ireland. So like I've I can't fault them in that regard. Like so Yeah, but it's yeah. it's almost like what is the you know the purpose of cycling Ireland? I think broadly it's to promote cycling within Ireland. So mm. you kind of have this, you know, it's more of uh, I think the, the catchphrase initially came from women's women's sport and Katie Taylor was on it, but it's the kind of idea of can't see me, can't be me. So you need to have role models out there. Like I'm sure, you know, you had role models. Like when I was starting, I was looking out at Roach and I'm looking at Dan Martin and stuff and thinking, fuck, that's where I want to get to. But yeah. without, without those people there, the next generation can't strive. So it's definitely in Cycling Ireland's interest to get riders like you who are on the cusp and get mm-hmm. them into World Tour. But it just feels like at times they don't do enough to help, you know, make those connections, help try and get you placed on teams, help you get stagiaires. And and then even the carding system and the funding system is so broke because by the time you actually qualify for Cycling Ireland or Sport Ireland funding, you're most likely at a level like Sam Bennett where yeah. you don't actually need the funding anymore because you have a contract at this stage. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I see where they're coming from, but it's also like where I'm at, it's also it's it's shit like. But like for example, the the gym when I was after U23 Worlds in Innsbruck, I was, like, really stuck for a gym program and, like, in the winter, you know, and I didn't really have a gym and, like, that's kind of, that, that stuff's really kind of important at the moment. And I was asking, because I live quite near Abbottstown and near near the the Sport Ireland Centre, and I was, I was like, I dropped uh, Brian Nugent a message. I think it was Nugent or Cycling Ireland, basically. I was like, can I hop in the gym? And he was like, I'd love to let you hop in the gym and use the, the Sport Ireland facility, but there's only three cyclists who have access. Dan Martin, Nicholas Roach, and I'm not sure who the third one was, but like, they don't live in Ireland. 
So <laughs> it's just basically no, no Irish cyclist has access to the gym unless you're on the, the national track squad or some, something similar. So, it, yeah, it's, it does need to be looked at, but I don't know the right answer, to be honest. Cause... And it's a phenomenal setup up there because obviously I had yeah. access with, uh, I was piloting on the Paris squad and I had access up there because we were a cardist. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it was a frustrating experience because, uh, you know, on, on the Paris squad, I came to the Paris squad really at the end, end of my, you know, serious cycling career. You know, I needed that sort of support, you know, eight years ago. I, I yeah. didn't need the access to physio, sports psychologists. You know, well, it's a funny one then because then that's diminishing the role of parasport and that is their actual Olympics. And that's the kind of dichotomy of being a tandem rider because you have one party on the bike uh, on the back who's visually impaired and this is his actual Olympics. And then you have an able-bodied guy on the front who mm. it's, it's not a real Olympics for them. It's a para-Olympics. So yeah, it, it's difficult to balance those sort of competing mindset sometimes on the tandem yeah yeah no that's that's interesting the way to put it like but, but going back to like the whole you wish you'd have support when you're a rider like it's it's very difficult as a national governing body i.e cycling ireland to dictate who they can give that to because like there's some guys racing at home with full-time jobs who are just as strong as me you know or just as strong as like, so why don't they get it? And they've got to pay for their gym. And why why should I get it? Just because I'm a full-time bike rider? So there's those, always those arguments. Yeah, but, um, does the, but the difficulty, like, yeah, undoubtedly there's difficulty in assigning who you give support to. But just because there's a little bit of friction in making that decision, does that justify complete inaction and not looking after anyone? Yeah, there's. A, I don't have the answer to that question, to be honest. Um, like I'd love yeah. to see like a wider you know like here you might do a, like a GEA and they'd have a panel where they have you know they might have 30 guys on the panel or whatever and all 30 of those guys on the Dublin panel all get access to you know strength and conditioning, sports psychology physios. It seems such an easy thing to do to pick a wide panel and say this is the Cycling Ireland panel for the season all mm. our national teams will be drawn from this panel and everyone on the panel will have you know, some level of support. I'd like to think that they do have a long list for events, whether they're released or not, or whether they're announced or not is another question. Um, and obviously whether they even have one, because I'd be unaware if, if they have, because I've not been obviously included in that. Um, but like even say that, if they had a long list for, for events being major championships, Europeans, Worlds, if you're an under-23, all the Nations Cups. I think they do have for the under-23s so far somewhere. Um, like the likes of that, like that, that, that long list would be the panel. And then then those guys, like sure, half of the Irish strikers aren't even based in Ireland. So, so like they would be, you wouldn't get that many people actually using the facilities um, and throughout the season as well. Like it's, it's yeah, it's, Ideally, we do gym work throughout the season, but it's very hard thing to manage the load. So, but you know, the funny thing is, even you know, Roadman Cycling as a coaching company, like we're given access to our clients to resources that you know guys who are trying to make a pro don't have, and it's insane. You know, like we can reach out and work with you know top physiologists and strength and conditioning experts and build a strength training program into a member's area and guys have a login or they can look at video demos and they can see how many sets of each exercise they're meant to do. 
we can give them access to sports psychologists in little you know resource areas but as you're trying to make it as a pro you, you don't always have money to sign up to you know coaching companies like this and you need this stuff more than your average joe because you know you end up becoming the inspiration for that average joe but yeah i just think it's a it's a very broken system and you're nearly within cycling ireland you have to succeed in spite of cycling ireland not because of them yeah yeah i suppose the cream the cream will always come to the top like um but like there's also lots of people who fall through the gaps so kind of it's about minimizing the people who fall through the gaps um with regards to the 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 strength and conditioning thing like that's still a bit taboo in cycling like it's not really like up until like the past maybe two or three years like i wasn't touching the gym like you know it's like if i if i'd been in the gym in the lead up to the innsbruck worlds for example where i rode the tt i reckon i'd have gone far better you know and but like when i won the, the national champs i was in the gym right up to it like two weeks before lifting heavy weights and i i'm convinced that that helped me significantly yeah so it's, but it's it's almost how information flows though and it takes just so long to flow down to you know lower income levels it's you know, it starts out because obviously with the podcast, I'm lucky enough and I get to chat to, you know, the, the top of the top inside world tour teams, be it riders, directors, coaches, SNC experts. And you can see what they're doing. You can see how they're pushing the envelope, the R&D that's going into, you know, developing riders for them. And then you see it's filtering down into, you know, clients who are paying a lot of money for programs like some of the top end ones we're offering. And it's filtering down that kind of socioeconomic ladder almost. And, you know, it's sometimes taken two years before it's becoming to your average Joe ambitious kid who's on the way up. No, for sure. And I also think that with regards to strength and conditioning and actually human physiology and training, like we we in Ireland and the UK are actually quite much further ahead than they are in France and Spain, maybe, and it, because, like, for example, I have a good friend whose father was top 10 in the Tour de France, like, and, like, he should, in theory, he wrote, his father wrote a map by, they should know, like, how to train. Like, but he doesn't touch the weight, doesn't touch the weight rack over the winter, like, for fear of putting on muscle mass and stuff. And we know now that that just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. But, like, it, and it stops injury, increases, like, your max uh, sprint power and, like there's so many benefits to it but it's just the thinking is so kind of far behind that like it's actually good that we have access to it in in ireland and stuff how long is your window how long is your rope like by that i mean how much time have you got before you have to get a world tour contract before this life becomes unsustainable like you talked about you've done 60 hours already in january that doesn't leave you a lot of space to go and get a part-time job, get a full-time job. So I assume that you're full-time and you're living on savings or you're living on, you know, handouts. So how long is that sustainable for? Um, yeah, well, so at the moment, I'm also a cycling coach. So that is helping. So I, basically in 2020, um, I crashed bad in a race in the Alps and I cracked my skull. Uh, so basically, I 
I was flying down in the center final round of the Coupe de France. There was maybe 15 riders left in the in the race. So I was there. Um next thing I remember is we're going over the top of the climb and it's raining. And next straight after that, I wake up in hospital. But apparently there was eight hours, six, seven, eight hours there where I was transporting two helicopters. And yeah, I woke up with sheer panic, asking my DS, is the race over? Is the race over? And he was like, Yes, it's over, you idiot. Um, but like I've got no recollection of what happened in between when I crashed and when I woke up. By all accounts, I we went panning down the descent into the last hairpin on the descent. It was a speed bump, and the first rider through the corner fell off. Second rider fell off. I was the fifth rider. I fell off. Used my head as a brake and hit the back of my skull right below my helmet against a block on the side of the road. You know the way in the Alps they have. Yeah. Um, those surrogate blocks and I cracked my ostipular condyle which is basically what protects your brainstem and I I currently have part of my ostipular condyle lodged in my brainstem it's going nowhere it's like my knee it's uh it's uh fibrously fused so it's 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 safe but basically long story short this whole process made me realize that like like one day we're, we're just going to be gone. Like, cause I've, I, there was six hours there. I have no recollection. So I was like, I'm just going to try and obviously I'm not, I don't want to be in the same position. Like I'm, I'm 24 now. I don't want to be 27, 28, still holding on to the dream. Um, because like, yeah, at some point you do have to move on, but I'm in the position now that I'm not costing anyone anything. I'm genuinely enjoying myself. And until I get to a point where I feel like either I need to need to kind of move on or I'm start costing people something like I think life's too short to be worrying about oh shit I need to get my shit together or because ultimately like if if when when it's all over like it's just going to be blank I think the most important thing is that you you've spent time doing what you actually want to do rather than going I suppose with the norms of getting a job, getting a mortgage, getting a wife, you know, um, that's my kind of thinking. It's definitely a good philosophy. And I definitely didn't have that maturity when I was in your stage. Uh, Cause I come out, I went masters and postgrad. So I was that bit older coming through the whole process, but I had this idea that I had to keep stepping up that if I didn't step up, that it was time to call it quits. And, you know, even, you know, I would have worked with and coached Sean McKenna for years, uh, an Irish that you'd know, and he kind of had this similar idea that you have to step up, have to step up. And as soon as you stagnate, it's time to call it quits. But looking back, I'm, I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do. Like you can turn the switch back to being a normal person very, very fast. But kind of my tipping points, similar enough to yours, and it's interesting that we kind of responded to it in different ways. I was uh, racing a Criterium in Detroit and my team actually chose at the last minute not to go to the Criterium because I was living in Toronto. It's Toronto's pretty close to Detroit. I still went. So I raced on the Saturday and I'd normally be part of, you know, this big, you know, you see them on YouTube with, you know, Nation's number one beast and stuff. Uh, part of this big lead out train and, you know, I'd be a small part of it and then I'd drop off and, you know, you know finish 60th or whatever. But because I was there on my own and the team hadn't gone, on the Saturday, the big lead out train starts 
And I just got to kind of surf around. And although I can't really sprint, you know, from doing the lead outs, I was good enough at hopping around from train to train. And I ended up just, even without sprinting, just surfing the trains, ended up coming fifth. And I got a chunk of prize money. And I was like, fuck, this is nice. I hardly had to do anything, just surf the trains. And I got fifth. And then the next day, I tried to do the same again. And at about 200 meters ago, there was a massive bunch crash. And I went down real bad. And I broke collarbone, bunch of ribs, finger, collapsed lung, broken shoulder socket, absolutely fucked up. And you know, a combination of the US healthcare system being shit, I ended up having to drive back to Toronto six hours with those injuries, like collapsed lung in the back, early breed. And just having this period of introspection where I'm like, you know what, is there, does the risk to reward here make sense for me? Because, you know, like you, you know, having to travel in a helicopter, you can die doing this shit. And it's, you know, so many injuries are for keeps. Like sitting here, I can still feel the effects of that crash. Just sitting here doing a podcast at the moment. And so that made me kind of reflect on, you know, what's the upside versus what's the downside in this sport? What I, it's interesting that you kind of have the same experience, but you spun it a different direction. And with the benefit of hindsight, I actually think yours is a healthier way to look at it. Yeah, I, I hear you. But also that said, I think that perhaps maybe if I remember, if I could remember the crash and if I could remember how it happened, I don't know if I could look at the way I look at it. Because I've got no, there's about a 30 minute window there. I've got most of the memory back, but there's still, from the minute I went over the top of the climb, I've got no, like it's all, it's blank like. So I reckon if I remembered the feeling of my wheel going out, hitting my head, or I don't know if I could fully commit to going down a descent fast again. Like, so, you know, it's like, it is, yeah, it's, it, it's different. And it was, it does put things in perspective, but like, I think there's two different, your, your experience is completely, I'd say I, I would be more edging towards the way you reacted to it. If I could remember. Yeah, but you know what, like just reflecting on it now, it's, you know, it's a high risk sport for sure. But, you know, also you see, and I'm not sure how much you're following Irish news recently, like the young girl that was out running the got killed, just going for a jog. It's, you know, the, the effects COVID's had on people. Life isn't without risks. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, to think that you can walk away from cycling all of a sudden, you know, you've no risk in your life like one of my good mates a teammate uh you know a lad you'd know fairly well from racing sean lacy like he had an accident out training a few years ago and he never cycled again after it and yeah. uh, that's just out training like that could easily be you know me commuting around on the brompton he got hit from a, from behind by a car and you know it, it's not even related to competition it's just out cycling that can happen so, yeah, the bike is a dangerous sport, though, and I heard it a quite interesting an- analogy recently. It's the only sport in the world where the pitch is constantly changing. Yeah. So, like, imagine a football player had to deal with a pitch that was <laughs> changing or, like, like, and it is, like, it's dangerous, and you might come around a corner and there might be a car right in front of you and have to react, but that's just, ultimately, we're doing it because we love it, you know? And it changes so fast, like, last time or not the last time the previous time before that I was in Girona I was over run the training camp and you know you're cruising down to the coffee shop and one of the guys that's there you know not super experienced but also just very unlucky 
he wasn't yeah. particularly paying attention. He hit a stick on the road, lost his hands off the bars, went down, and he ended up breaking his hip. And you're like, it goes from we're, doing, we're cruising to the coffee shop in the sun on a recovery day to of a broken hip so fast. Like, I've never yeah. seen a sport that has changes in fortune so fast. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's also quite nice being on the edge of whether, uh, <laughs> although maybe I'm a bit insane, like, but oh, almost almost dying every day is kind of a, a nice, brings you back down to earth. And they kind of, yeah, I think, I, think, I think every bike rider has to have a little bit of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what's life look like after cycling? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, like, obviously, I've got, I've coached a few riders at the moment. I, I would, I'd like to think that I'm going to keep that up for a good while. I have a mechanical engineering degree. Um, so I got that in the IT because I wasn't good enough as, uh, so basically I was second year junior. I was in first year in college. So I was kind of lucky in that I started school early and then I wasn't good enough first year, second year in 23 to go full time or I didn't think I was anyway. So my degree was only three years. So in theory, I could go work as a mechanical engineer. Not that I know what a mechanical engineer does, um, which is kind of bad. But uh, yeah, that's 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 what I have. I've got something to uh, sit back on anyway. So I'm not sure I want want to work as a mechanical engineer. Though. Is there anyone you kind of, you know, I, I, there's a guy who mentors me. And I remember a few years ago, he just gave me this great quote that I don't even think he appreciated the significance of it when he was saying it but i i love diary and writing all the time so i remember jotting it down i was just jotting it down at literally the top of the page of my diary every day for months on end and it was just like success leaves clues and it's this idea that if you have someone that you go fuck his life is cool i really like you know the way he's carved out a living i like the way you know he's vibing you can work backwards from where he is now and go, okay, well, this is what he'd done a year before he got there. This is what he's done two years before he got there. You can almost retrace his path to success. And uh, so I definitely have a couple of guys that I'm going, oh, yeah, that's, uh, I'm definitely trying to retrace yeah. their path. But is there anyone you kind of look at and go, you know, outside of the world of cycling? Because obviously, you know, you know, like Sagan's and stuff, it'd be amazing to do that. But if you went the alternate route, do you have anyone that you're looking at and going, fuck, that's, that's a pretty cool way of living your life um it's not something i've ever really thought about to be honest but like ultimately like i think that if like you've done it yourself and you've been quite successful like if you're gonna the amount of effort and time that we put into cycling if we put that into any other walk of life ultimately you're going to be successful in my opinion so like it's not something that I tend to really stress over and I've not really looked or thought about who I look up to or anything like that. But um, maybe there is you know, just something not, I've not thought about. That, that's what we do here, Con. It's just meaning of life chats. It's like a little therapy session. Getting real deep, aren't I? <laughs> uh, let's finish on this one, Con. Take me back to the time trial champs in 2020. 2020? Yeah, COVID year. Talk to me about it. How big was that for you? I was massive. Like it was, I, I I don't don't cry very often, but like when I won that, I I was on the turbo. My father, my father was there, and I, I just burst my my butt, bur, I burst out crying. Um, 
yeah so like i did basically i had the perfect preparation for it so obviously covid hit i went home in march stayed there stayed at home until first week of august and the team had what did we have so we had uh coupe de france team time trial so the on the the final week of august first week september then i had a trio normand so that's a trio team time trial for 50k and chrono champenois and like I knew I was going well because I was like one of the strongest riders in the Coupe de France team time trial, um, which was like an hour long effort. Um, three on Armand, I actually blew my lights. <laughs> I thought it was Billy Big Balls. Rode around the first lap, it was basically two laps of the 26 kilometer circuit, and rode around the first lap at like 400 normalized or something. And then the second lap literally like suffered like a dog. And then, then I was second in. Corona Champenois and uh, behind the French amateur uh, national champ. So like I knew it was going well. We were doing, I was working very closely with Tommy Evans at the time and we were doing like proper hard sessions, like lots of kind of intermit- intermittent, intermittent, uh, like threshold work. Um, probably two, two of those sessions a week, lots of tempo work and like just hard, hard training. But like, in the back of my head, yeah, we were training for national champs. But, like, I honestly didn't think that I was going to do very well. Like, I was more kind of going in there, didn't really care, just kind of trying to get the best out of myself. So I got to the champs, had I had my equipment down, which I was happy about. Like, I got a new wheel built up by Cliff Mulhern, the best. Uh, the If you want to build wheel built, he's the man to build your wheel. Um, yeah, in Dublin anyway. Um, built wheel built by him. Had my tires, had chains. You know, you know yourself. Time traveling is so much down to equipment nowadays. Um, and then I had like obviously had the all, all the S and C. It was doing that all the way up until two weeks before. But even still, I I went down there, wrecked the course, and like I knew it was it actually wasn't a course for me to be honest. Like it was a flat main road out and back had a bit of a technical turn which ultimately helped me win the thing um but yeah like it really wasn't that suited to me um but anyway yeah I went went down and I wasn't really putting any stress on myself I would literally just kind of laughing before I start and I tend to go the best when I'm not stressed um so yeah, so I did my warm up, got started the TT, got a few a few minutes out the road, and I was like, "Shit, I feel good." Like I was riding, I was up on like any projected pr- predicted powers, and I just kind of smiled to myself. And yeah, I got got over the finish line and really felt like I'd got everything out and uh, wore me down the turbo afterwards. And I was told that I won, and I was like, it was like, it was just a moment of like, whoa. What was that, po- that, who was on the podium that day? Uh, it was me, Nico, and uh, Lindsay Watson. So, like, what's going through your head or, at that point? Are you? Is it just vindication of all the hard work? Is it a thank you for all the people who have given you a leg up along the way, or is it just you know a very private moment? Um, 
it just took me a, a, a bit of time to process it. Like, cause obviously like it was just something that I like, yeah, it was just, it was such a shock, like, you know, and um, it's not something that anyone can ever take away from me as well. So even if my cycling career ends tomorrow, like it's like I've won, won the same, the elite national championship, you know? I think that's the thing. And when you go abroad, you know, when you start winning in Ireland and then you make the choice to go abroad to France and you have, you know, two, three years, whatever it is, racing abroad, you end up, you know, if you had a stayed at home during that period, you could have put your name on a lot, a lot of trophies. But your best form is, you know, miles away from everybody back home to see. So sometimes people don't know how well you're going. So when you look back on a cycling career, like and I'm, I'm talking really about myself here, but projecting mm. onto you a little bit, when you look back on kind of your cycling career, you know, you can look and go, okay, I've won the Des Hand, then I've won the Shea Elliott, but you never really seen what the next step up looks like. And you've never yeah. tested yourself to see where the limit is, or you can go like you've done and you can keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, see where the ceiling is. But to have something like the time trial champs, like no one can ever take it from you. So, you know, if you make world tour, if you don't make world tour, it's still going to be something that you'll be 30 years from now sitting back going, fuck it. I was national time trial champion. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, and ultimately to be honest, like while I'd love to, I genuinely would love to get to the world tour. Honestly, I don't care whether I do or not. Like if, if, if I do great, if I don't, that's not the end of the world. Like something I'm actually really looking forward to this year is with Evo Pro, we are racing, we're going to be racing the big ones at home, like the Elliot, the Hanlon, the Ross. Um, what else is there? Uh, Ross Moon, maybe. Um, like there's their races. Like I was on, I've been on the podium, the Elliot, uh, not never on the podium, the Hanlon. Like there are races that before I finish racing, I want my name on those trophies. You know, and like that kind of that genuinely excites me because it's been three or four years since I've raced the home. Life. So it's kind of sort of different kind of I don't know. Um just kind of put things into perspective because when Evo Pro the first year Evo Pro existed, obviously I wasn't on the team, but there is the first year that the Ross disappeared. And when the on post team were in existence, um they were they would have been half their wins would have been at the Ross. And that's how like when I was growing when I was growing up in cycling and looking at like idols, say, in cycling, I was like, fuck, the unpost team, they look class. Like they always look pro, they look just proper good. They I remember when I was I was 15, when I was in the inspiration cycling club in Dumboyne, obviously, and the Ross used to start in Dumboyne. I was like, Sam Bennett would have been on the team. It was the year Connor Dunn was in the jersey. I don't know what year that was. Oh, um, that was 2013. Yeah, uh, so like I was, I would have just started cycling in around then, and then um, I saw like the uh, the on post team, and I don't know who Connor Dunn was riding with Carrick at the time. I just remember seeing this massive. Yeah, top Connor was Carrick. Yeah, he won the four stage. Yeah, and like that, that like that was just kind of that'd be one of my first kind of lasting memories of like how cool like the on post team looked and stuff and like it's just a pity that like now this year it might change but like people of that age what well, i must what was age was i then i was 15 like that that i just that was just really cool and that really motivated me to kind of start training properly 
and hopefully hopefully Evo can can do that this year. Um, yeah, it should be cool to see. I'm sort of uh, bittersweet. If I'm racing, I won't be enjoying seeing Hughes rocking up. But if I'm not, uh, it's it's great to see the colours back, and it's great to see yeah. you know a team that people can look up to and strive towards. And you know, Morgan Fox has done a great job putting it all together, and pretty much out of the limelight as well. And Post, you know, had huge financial backers, and it seemed like pretty widespread media support and approval but Morgan's had none of that and he's pieced together an unbelievable roster year on year and an unbelievable calendar that's the thing like and that goes so much respect for Morgan and by all accounts when he was a racer he was crazy and I think he pissed a lot of people off and um, as a bike rider but those bike riders that he pissed off are, are now race organizers and I think you know yourself like if you piss someone off on a bike they'll actually respect you off it. So, like, now he's getting lots of race invites and, like, he knows what races we need to be riding and the race organizers respect him for pissing, it, pissing them off in bike races. So, like, yeah, no, it's, it's, really, it's really cool. It's a really nice project to be a part of, to be honest, especially yeah. after... Morgan's a great man. He's a good, good dude. I had him as a director for a year. Uh, Con, wrap before we wrap up, uh, what's your shout out on your social so people can follow you and see how you get on and see if you crack your skull off any more walls this season? <laughs> Please, God, I don't. Um, yeah, no, just on Instagram, I suppose. It's Con, Con McGonfrey, I think. Um, yeah, simple. <laughs> but yeah. Easy. Boom. Con, thank you for chatting. Um, best of luck for the season. Uh, I'll definitely have to get you back on towards the end of the year and see if you're any closer to snagging that World Tour contract. Yeah, cool. Look forward to it. Cheers, Con. Talk soon. Well, man, before you rush off, I want to mention something completely new. We've recently just formed the new Roadman Cycling Club. So there's two elements to this club. One, it's a virtual club. You can join it anywhere in the world. And two, it's an in-person club based in Ireland. So if you're a racing cyclist in Ireland and you're looking for a team to race in the colours of next season, if you're looking to hang out with some amazing people and do group rides on the weekend, go and check it out it's roadmancycling.com forward slash roadmancc the link is in the show notes hope you can join us as part of the new roadman cycling club